Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We're talking about converting Main Street as well as Hamilton's first hospice for children, healthcare challenges, a luxury bus service, and Simone Lawrence Day. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There's a new accelerated timeline to convert Main Street here in Hamilton. As you know, it's a one-way street, and the conversion will make it a two-way street. So uh, earlier this week, Hamilton's Public Works Committee, in a unanimous vote, is entering into a single-source contract with WSP Canada. And for a million dollars, they're going to do a detailed design of Maine from Dundurn to the Delta. And that's going to allow for construction to begin before the end of next year. And so in a few years' time, we'll be going back and forth. Two ways on Maine. Who'd have thunk? Michael Field, the uh, city's director of transportation operations, said the goal is to improve safety for all road users. It would be slower to travel on Main Street. Um, The synchronization, I can't answer today. That is part of the detailed design to figure out how the the signals are going to work uh, in concert with each other. It certainly is a complex project for sure. Maureen Wilson is the councillor for Ward 1 in the city of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Maureen, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Why step on the accelerator for this project? Hmm. Well, let's start by just stating the obvious. The number one responsibility of any person holding public office is the health and safety of residents. Full stop. Um, This road, uh, as it was configured, five lanes, four lanes of one way, Highway cutting through the heart of our city and cutting through neighborhoods uh, presented a clear and present danger to people. And we knew that year after year after year. Collision data told us that. It wasn't safe for drivers. It wasn't safe for neighborhoods and pedestrians. And it wasn't safe for cyclists. So um, Council, in its wisdom, in May, uh, directed that we make immediate changes to uh, this albatross and that we go ahead with the plans to convert it from one way to two way. We received that report last December and council said, hey, this is really exciting. Uh, Those changes to make it safer in the interim, they're working. Um, We'd like to see if we can accelerate this so that we can get it done prior uh, to LRT uh, being under construction and King Street being under construction. And that's what that report was about yesterday. There are conditions which would enable us to have a compressed uh, both design uh, period and a construction period. So you made mention of the the safety concerns, and certainly we had many before some of the changes were made, and some of those changes include not turning right on a red, having those advanced pedestrian walk signs becoming available. Uh, Are there still safety concerns on Maine, even though we've made some improvements? Well, yes, uh, there are. The improvements have been quite remarkable. It is... uh, primarily about safety. It's also about livability. We know that when we have a highway with that many uh, fast moving lanes, um, it it almost serves as a a barbed wire. It disconnects neighborhoods uh, from one another. It gets in the way of children safely walking and independently walking to and from school, to and from play. Um, It also concentrates a a lot of emissions in uh, lower 
lower city neighborhoods. Um, and as it stands right now, uh, it is still the data is telling us that it could be safer. And that's our it's our priority. Is there a concern? I'm sure this has been studied where, you know, people who are, are traveling on Maine, when, once it is two way, that they'll figure out, at least some people will figure out, you know what, this this is now too slow for me. I was used to going 60 on Maine, now it's 30. I'm going to go a, a different way. And now we'll, you know, transfer those safety concerns to another part of the community. Is that is that a fear? I think that's always a fear with, with folks. And we know that when we travel and do the same pattern and route every day, it's it's muscle memory, right? We we time our lives accordingly, um, and it's worked really uh, well that way. This this highway was designed to move people quickly, and it was designed to give primacy to the car and the car driver. But that has had disastrous results, not only in health and safety, uh, it has affected small business and a whole bunch of other aspects in our lives. It's a terrible, ugly entrance uh, gateway to, to our city. So it checks none of the boxes of if you could do it again, would you do it this way? Absolutely not. But we also know that we're not, we are looking at Maine, but we are also considering the city as a whole with respect to transportation and land use. Some people might at the beginning get frustrated or seek another way. And what they're going to probably find out that it's actually not quicker. It might be more frustrating. Um, and we're going to continue with those safe street installations to ensure that we're not going to make it convenient for you. We either have a city for people or we have a city for cars. And we know that successful, um, competitive cities are built for people. They're not built to get you across the city in 25 minutes or, or less. It, it eats into our economic advantage. Yeah, good point. There's, there's got to be a balance for sure. Cyclists, pedestrians, those in cars, those on public transit, there's got to be a, a balance. And sometimes that is certainly tricky. And for decades, we've had this one-way albatross, as you've called it. And it's really, I think, ingrained in our minds that this is the way mm -hmm. it's got to be. And no, it can be different. I, I want to get to the cost aspect because sure. the estimate is $26 million. This is yep. not going to be done for two, three, maybe four years. Is that today's dollars or dollars in 2027, 28? That's today's dollars. And the, the other direction that council, uh, so if, if you have uh, driven across Maine, it's a disaster, right? Yes. Like it's, it's uh, that we have a lot of um, uh, postcards of what happens when previous councils under invest in core assets and road is roads are a core asset um, in order to deliver false I would say false low tax rates. So if you drive across there, it's just pockmark after pockmark of a pothole. So we were going to have to rehabilitate that road anyway. It was in the five-year capital plan. And so what we wanted to know for reasons of transparency was tell us the cost of what we're going to have to eat anyway. And that's just over $11 million. Um, and then tell us the costs that are associated with the conversion. And most of those costs at $15 million are uh, due to uh, very expensive, and they're always expensive, um, uh, traffic installations, uh, computerized lighting, um, and, and not just turning them the other way. There, there has to be really careful configuration of those intersections. Makes a lot of sense. Maureen, we'll have to leave it there. So uh, thankful that you were able to join us this morning and talk about this very important project with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Maureen Wilson is the councillor for Ward 1 with the City of Hamilton. Wanted to get to a bunch of other things, but obviously, you know, time is always our enemy. And one of those things was, and we'll have to have this conversation on a future show, two-way versus one-way. Is it better 
for the economy. There is some debate out there. I, I would always think two ways better because you're having traffic on both sides and, I don't know, more eyeballs on your potential shop. We'll have to have that discussion on a future date. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton is on the way to becoming the fourth Ontario city to be home to a pediatric hospice. This proposal, in my mind anyways, goes beyond just greater good. We're talking about some legacy level stuff here. This is um, the worthiest of worthy causes that we're talking about here. Some of the comments from City Councillor Jeff Beattie just the other day in Hamilton City Hall. Let's bring in Danielle Zuckett, the CEO of Kemp Care Network, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Danielle, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Well, as you Thank know, you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is, uh, I think, a very important topic and, and something to discuss. And I was kind of surprised that we didn't already have one, but let's get into it. This was a this was a slam dunk approval from City Hall. Tell us about this hospice and why it is so needed in this community. So um, last week really marked a significant milestone as the city of Hamilton approved, um, you know, unanimously approved the agreement for the pediatric hospice on surplus city land. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, it is long overdue. McMaster Children's Hospital is is a world-class hospital, and, and we currently don't have a children's hospice. And it's a huge gap that exists in our region um, where we need to uh, provide these supports for seriously ill children and their families. And so uh, Keaton's House Paul Paletta Children's Hospice will not only offer end-of-life care, but will also offer planned and emergency respite, pain and symptom management, uh, transitional care from home to hospital, and really provide this wraparound care so that families can move seamlessly between hospice, hospital, and home, really meeting them where they're at. We've certainly seen the benefits of this with the Dr. Kemp Hospice in Hamilton that has provided this service for years and is really, I mean, it's an emotional time for for parents and, and caregivers, certainly for the children as well. And this just offers them some respite. Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, we want to create this beautiful continuum of care and this wraparound support for family. And, you know, in in concert with this development, our organization has undergone this, you know, and is undergoing this expansion and rebranding and and now known as the Kemp Care Network, we're encompassing Dr. Kemp's House, uh, Grief and Bereavement Center of Excellence, and, and now Keaton's House Pediatric Hospice. And it's really full circle as we've been in the community providing supports for over 30 30 years. And so it's um, a beautiful addition to our, our network. Let's get into some of the financials. So, well, how much is this going to cost? Are you fundraising? How's this all going to work? Yes. So we are currently underway with uh, a, a $25 million campaign for the build. And we're, we're over halfway there. And um, yes, we, we are... Uh, reaching out to the community. It's an incredible opportunity for our community and, and philanthropists to really leave a lasting impact on, on this beautiful project. So we still have a ways to go and, and um, we're looking for um, creating more community awareness about this project and, and reaching our goal of $25 million. Is the easiest way to donate to go to camphospice.org? Absolutely, KempHospice.org, and uh, it'll direct you. There's a capital campaign tab for Keaton's House. So whereabouts is this in the city? 
So it will be located at 41 South Street in Dundas, and it's in very close proximity to McMaster Children's Hospital, which was incredibly important to um, create and this continuum of care to be in close proximity because families will move from the community into hospital into hospice. And um, it was really important uh, with our allyship with McMaster that we are in close proximity and also such a beautiful community. It's uh, backs onto the rail trail. Um, so, you know, beautiful stream closest. It's really a, what we're trying to create is really a home away from home for these families and uh, with beautiful surroundings, beautiful serene gardens, and uh, within within the accessibility of having the hospital nearby. Sounds like it's going to be an amazing place. Uh, Danielle Zuckett is the CEO of the Camp Care Network. Uh, again, you can find out more information and make a donation online, camphospice.org. When is the targeted opening date? So our, we're hoping to have ceremonial grand, groundbreaking uh, early spring of this year. And uh, the next phase is a construction phase, and, and we're uh, poised to open the doors in the spring of 2026. We just did an interview about the need for home care in this community as the population ages. We're at the other side of the, the patient spectrum, if you will. Are there challenges with recruiting individuals to care for these patients? So what, what are some of the, the roadblocks you envision that you have to overcome to make this happen? So, I, I mean, they're, they're definitely, um, you know, it is uh, a healthcare, you know, uh, nursing, you know, that, that in healthcare, there's definitely a, a need for more healthcare professionals. But I believe this project to be um, so near and dear to our community that, um, you know, the, the community will, will support it and, and we won't have an issue in that regard. That's amazing to hear. Danielle, thank you so much for the time. Best of luck with this and we'll certainly uh, follow up down the road. Thank you so much. Danielle's, have a great day. You too. Danielle Zuckett is the CEO of Kemp Care Network. If you'd like to make a donation or just want to find out more information on this pediatric hospice that's going to be um, built in Dundas, Kemp Hospice. Dot org And the Dr. Camp Hospice up on the mountain is just, I remember getting a tour a few years ago, just an amazing place. And the people who work there are, I mean, just amazing comes to mind. That's the only word I can use because it's that, it's that special of a place. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new report out that suggests the Ford government is taking public money and directing that cash to private for-profit clinics and hospitals to build things like new operating rooms. Say what? Well, with more on the robbing from the public to build the private report, here is our next guest, Natalie Mera, the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Natalie, good morning. Good morning, Rick. All right, how much money are we talking about here? Well, hundreds of millions in <clears throat> just over a couple of years. Uh, it's big. It's a lot of money. It would have made a big difference in the local public hospitals, but instead it's been spent to rebuild operating rooms in for-profit clinics and hospitals that are getting funded at a much higher rate to do surgeries. So 21% to 56% higher rate for the private clinics and um, more than double the rate per surgery for the same surgeries. Uh, at a private hospital. How is this allowed to happen? Is this against the Canada Health Act? Well, see, that's the problem. Um, 
you know, it shouldn't happen. And that's why we put out the report, because the public needs to know. I mean, in every hospital virtually across the province, first off, virtually all the public hospitals are in deficit now. They've been pushed into deficit because the government has decided to fund them at less than the rate of inflation, half a percent increase this year. And at the same time, it has um, increased the funding for private clinics by 212%. And to a private hospital, there are only two private hospitals left in Ontario by 278%. And so it's technically not against the Canada Health Act. The delivery of health care um, can be public or private or non, you know, public non-profit or private. But the, uh, but because the private clinics extra bill patients, so they charge patients for medically needed services like surgeries. Um, in Hamilton, for example, I phoned one private clinic on my way into town one day and they were charging literally outright for, for almost, I think it was around $4,000 for cataract surgery. One, a ludicrous price, and two, you are not allowed to charge a patient for a surgery. Under the Canada Health Act, that's what we won when we won public Medicare in Canada. That's what it means. It means that you have medically needed hospital and physician services when you need them. You don't have to pay for them, uh, and so they do it illegally anyway. All the more frustrating, and we've heard about you know people going to the hospital and then waiting in the waiting room for hours, and then waiting in a room for a physician for hours. And this report shows that multiple hospitals had operating rooms that are functional but not being used, including those in St. Catharines, Kitchener, Oakville, London. That, Natalie, is bonkers. That's right. And you know what? That applies to Hamilton as well. <clears throat> um, we didn't get updated... Uh, data for this report from the Hamilton Health Coalition, but it is the case in Hamilton. The last time I spoke with um, staff who work in the operating room, and that was about half a year ago, it was the case. There are operating rooms there that are used as storage closets, um, and that's the case across the province. So they're sitting idle, and our communities have paid, built them for 100 years, our local hospitals have funded them, and so on. And here they're sitting idle because they don't have the funding to run them. It's primarily funding. I mean, they need the funding to be able to find the staff and then to retain the staff, right? And um, while the government has poured literally hundreds of millions of dollars into private for-profit staffing agencies, they have kept wage caps on for the public staff in the public hospitals. And those wage caps only applied to healthcare staff who are working in public and non-profit healthcare, not for-profit healthcare, mm. if you can believe it. I mean, what we're trying to show is just the total difference in the way that this government treats the public and non-profit versus the for-profit. And they're starving one in order to feed the other. All the while, and we're in discussion with Natalie Mara, the Executive mm. Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. We have a couple more minutes in this segment. All the while... We're talking about money here. The province, and we know we've seen the numbers that are black and white, has greatly underspent its health care dollars. That's right. Oh, for, for all of these years, they've literally shunted billions of dollars into um, surplus, into um, contingency and the budget surplus while underspending on health care, even as the public system was tipped into crisis. 
you know, with emergency departments closing across the province Mm with um, ICUs, you know, in Hamilton, for example, working dreadfully understaffed, et cetera. Um, they, they're literally underspending the, the healthcare budget for the public side and just throwing money, overspending the budget on the private side. It sounds like they want to prove that public health care can work, and that's why they're investing that much more money into it. And you mentioned ERs are closing. We've had Bill 124, which has been deemed unconstitutional, physician burnout, health care dollars not being spent. Like, is anyone in the government paying attention? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you meant. I think what you're trying to say is it sounds like they're trying to make it sound like private health care can work or or the public health care can't work. Yeah. I, I mean, it is this old create a crisis and privatize. Absolutely. Without And this report set out to look at the actual numbers, the actual evidence. The evidence is irrefutable. I mean, you can't, it's, these are the government's own figures. They are fact and you can't dispute them. They, they are starving the public side and they are, it's a feeding bonanza over on the private side at this point, and it's destroying our public health system. You can get um, more information and, in the report, Robbing from the Public to Build the Private Report. Natalie Mara, the uh, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, is our guest. Natalie, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It used to be that the golden years, man, take. You're putting your feet up, you're celebrating life, you're cruising into the horizon. Sounds nice. But for many people, it's it's not that fun. Well, there are health concerns, health issues. As you get to ages 70 and 75, 80 plus And so to that end, over the next five years, the number of people in Ontario who will be over that age of 75, again, with all the health concerns that go with it, that number is expected to jump by 350,000. So in five years, 350,000 Ontarians will hit the age of 75. And that increase is going to mark the sharpest rise in the last 20 years, which is going to put a tremendous amount of pressure on the already ailing healthcare system. And so it should be not surprising at all to hear that a new report from McMaster University, it's called The Impact of Ontario's Aging Population on the Home Care Sector, shows that we're going to need 6,800 new PSWs to provide home care as this population ages. Here to talk about it is Laura Tamblin-Watts, the CEO of CanAge, who we welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Laura, thanks for waking up with us. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Our aging population is clearly a huge issue. And as, as we learned from the pandemic and the, uh, let's call them the atrocities at long-term care facilities, more and more people in this province and across the country want to age in place. They want to stay in their home for as long as possible. That means we're going to need a lot more home care providers. But it sounds like we need a lot more than maybe originally expected. What's your thoughts on this situation? We really do need so much more in seniors' care. And what this report talks about actually is just to keep the number steady at what the service provision is right now and only just personal support workers. So really, this report understates the significant concerns that we have because it talks about keeping things at current levels. Well, anyone who's tried to get home care knows 
our current levels aren't very good. In Ontario, there's actually a significant wait list to just even get the home care that's available. This report is really ringing the alarm. How long does it take right now to get home care? We have a waiting list in some parts of Ontario for home care of several thousand people. So these are folks who are fully qualified and who need it, but there's just not enough personal support workers to provide the care. And that's not even talking about the other higher levels of care where, for instance, you might need a nurse that's even more rare. So we have a real labor shortage coming up. And we really need to rethink both what we're using that care for and what tasks can we maybe automate or use AI or somehow use technology so that those rare hours we're using in the most effective way possible. We're not doing that well right now. So if we don't have the, the man power or the woman power, the person power, we're going to have to get creative. Are, 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 are people thinking about this in terms of the decision makers? We have seen investments that are being announced, but we really haven't seen as a significant improvement. Folks will remember we just saw the federal government sign a bilateral deal a couple of weeks ago, $3.1 billion seniors' care is flagged, but it doesn't seem that it's absolutely required. So I say it's flagged. The federal government has announced this money, and it said one of the things that they're wanting this money used for is to address things such as home care and staffing. But it's quite unclear what the Ontario government is really planning to do. Well, and that's a good point because, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes' time as well, is that it seems like this province and other ones are in the same boat are moving, at least leaning towards more of a private health model, at least a combination of the two. How does that going to impact home care? Well, you're really right. Absolutely. Home care was taken out of our provincial services and privatized you know, decades ago. And since that time, we've seen the both availability and in some cases, people would say the quality of care go down. What it certainly does mean is that things like Bill 124, which capped off how much money a person could make that was in our healthcare sector, uh, really put an additional chilling effect on trying to recruit people. Now, that was just struck down. But what we know is that the conditions of work are the conditions of care. And right now, very hard work being a personal support worker for, frankly, very little money. That's got to change. And, yeah, with those two realities, I mean, how do you recruit people to this to this sector of the healthcare industry? You just don't. I mean, that's the reality. You just don't. We're not going to be able to recruit people in it unless we change it now. Just to give you a sense that you can have governments make different decisions. We all saw what happened in long-term care in both Ontario and Quebec with the military. One of the responses that Quebec did was it created 10,000 new training positions for what we will call a personal support worker. It's not exactly the same, but it was quite similar to that. And the way they did that is by saying, We'll pay you about $50,000 a year, offer you full-time jobs with pensions and benefits, and we'll pay you to train. Well, turns out every seat was full. 
Ontario did the exact opposite. It put in Bill 124 and capped the amount of money and capped the amount of remuneration more broadly. And we can't recruit people fast enough. So That brings up another point. How many people in Ontario are thinking, wow, they have that in Quebec. I'll go work there. Sure. And, and that happens across the sector as well. So there's such a profound labor shortage in the healthcare sector, but we're also running into a broader labor shortage. And so you know, people and jobs are going to become very competitive. And we need to make sure that we're thinking about how we're using people. And again, there's a lot of jobs that are in the healthcare sector, such as personal support workers, where you spend a lot of quite inefficient time driving between two places, often not getting paid for driving between jobs and form filling out these types of labor-intensive tasks, which could be streamlined with better technology. So we're going to have to, as you say, get creative and make sure that those precious hours with another trained person are being used as effectively as possible. Sounds like there's a lot of red flags to deal with over the next couple of years. Laura, thanks for spending some time with us this morning and have a great day. You too. Take care. Laura Tamblin-Watts is the CEO of CanAge as we reflect on this uh, report out of McMaster University that shows we need a heck of a lot of PSWs to provide home care as our population ages. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It may soon be easier for you to get to Pearson Airport if you're flying with Air Canada. Listen to this. The airline has partnered with the Landline Company to transport passengers on a luxury motor coach from airports in places like Hamilton and Waterloo to Toronto. And this all is going to start in May. Cole Horncastle is the Executive Managing Director of John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Cole, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. What are the benefits for Hamilton International Airport with this partnership? Yeah, well, first off, this is this is really unique and amazing news for us here at Hamilton International, and we're really excited to partner with, with both Air Canada uh, and the landline company here to offer this luxury motor coach service from Hamilton to YYZ, to, to Toronto Pearson. You know, when we talk about some of the benefits, the benefits are really for our passengers here and the people who love to use Hamilton. So you basically get the best of what Hamilton has to offer here. You check in in Hamilton, your bags go through the process here, you don't see your bags after you, you check in here at the airport. Uh, you hop on the, the luxury motor coach and get dropped off to be uh, screened at Toronto Pearson and on your way. So uh, it's a great opportunity for someone to utilize our facilities here, um, and we know a lot of people love them, uh, and then head on your way and connect into the Air Canada hub in Toronto. Could this also be a benefit in terms of parking revenue, like someone is going to drive to Hamilton International, park in the parking lot, get on this uh, luxury motor coach and then go to Pearson. Is, is that going to be realized as well? Well, and that's exactly another benefit to our passengers here is that instead of driving to Pearson and, and parking with their rates, um, you know, we all know how close you can get to the terminal building here in Hamilton where you park. You'll, you'll have a lower rate um, compared to where you would be at, at Toronto Pearson. And ultimately, you get to use those savings because when you book your ticket um, through Air Canada, Many of the tickets, there's actually no fee for this service to use. So it, it's a win-win for the passenger. Hmm. Did Air Canada approach Hamilton International or, or did Landline Company? How did this How did this come about? So the Landline Company is, is currently operating in the United States. This is, we're their first um, attempt here into Canada. But they've, they've been successful in the States with this service before. So Air Canada approached the airport here on this potential partnership, along with the regional Waterloo. 
um, to pilot this out in Canada. Uh, I do think it's very successful. So this is going to start in May, and, and you just mentioned this is a pilot. How long does it go for? Currently, there's no end date to it, uh, from our understanding. So hmm. it's, it's in place now, and you know, passengers, I was actually looking to book online yesterday to see what you can, and, and you can book basically every single Air Canada flight out of Toronto through a connection here in Hamilton. Wow, that is pretty cool. You mentioned it is successful in the States. Uh, where is it, and, and how successful has it been? Yeah, there's a couple airports. One of the airlines that they use um, is with Sun Country, and they operate at a couple airports um, in the United States. So uh, Landline is, is not a new service, and we're really looking forward to seeing how it picks up here in Canada. This could potentially bring a lot of new eyeballs, a lot of new passengers to John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport, where, where uh, you know, otherwise they would not even have considered it. You know, I'm, if I'm flying Air Canada, i got to go to Pearson. And this might convince other people to say, you know what, this is a pretty cool airport, it's easy to get in and out, parking's not an issue, I might just fly out of here the next time around. Exactly, yeah. and you know what we're hoping is to, to build a bit of awareness here of this product as well. We'll have a beautiful Air Canada bus right out front of, of my office here and then parked right in front of the terminal uh, and just providing customers with another unique option here uh, from Hamilton. That sounds like a pretty win-win-win uh, when you consider all three partners getting <laughs> in on this. Cole, really appreciative of your time this morning. Thanks for explaining what's going to happen. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. You got it. Cole Horncastle is the Executive Managing Director at John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. You know, when I first saw this story, I thought, why does Hamilton Airport want people to go to their airport and then fly out of Toronto? And now, well, now you hear some of the benefits, uh, and there's a few of them. So, yeah, good luck to uh, all the partners in that. Sounds kind of cool. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Celebration was on in the city of Hamilton yesterday outside Hamilton City Hall. And again, at Tim Hortons Fields for what was Simone Lawrence Day in the Hammer. February 21st, 21 being the nod to his jersey number will uh, forever be known as Simone Lawrence Day in this city. And this all comes after the famed Ticats superstar, linebacker, all-time franchise leading tackler uh, recently announced he is stepping away from the game. As he called it, graduating from football. Well, he's retiring. He's no longer going to play with the team. And he's, as you can imagine, after you know a dozen years in the Canadian Football League and some sensational campaigns, you know, calling it a career at age 35 in which yeah, he probably could have played one or maybe even two more years. Heck, maybe even three more years if he stayed healthy. Calling it a career knowing you still have a little bit of gas in the tank was clearly a, a tough decision for Sim. I spoke to him uh, yesterday about that. And he's, he's found it quite hard over the last number of days. As you can imagine, and anyone who retires from their, their place of work, where they love going to work each and every day, and love working with others each and every day, and I, I would feel exactly the same as Simone Lawrence. You know, pulling away from the, the game that you love and the, the place of employment that you just can't get enough of, that's difficult. So yesterday outside Hamilton City Hall in the forecourt, Mayor Andrea Horvath, a number of dignitaries from the Tiger Cats, former players, current players, all there to uh, celebrate Simone Lawrence. And then last night at Tim Hortons Field, there was a, uh, a graduation event, if you will, in which fans scooped up tickets for $21 and the proceeds going to Food for Kids Hamilton to uh, celebrate once again with Simone. 
And so here's some of the sounds from yesterday's uh, event at Hamilton City Hall. And we'll start with uh, Mayor Andrea Horvath. As already pr probably has been mentioned many times, and I've, I've seen a number of articles in the, uh, the Spectator and uh, on, on radio, we've been hearing about Simone's amazing career. We know that uh, our Tiger Cats are near and dear to the, uh, the hearts of uh, all of the football fans and all of the people uh, in our city. And uh, Oski Wee Wee, okay, we gotta do it properly. Do we have Pixie in here? No. Okay. Oski Wee Wee! Oski Wawa! Holy Tasca! Tigers! And that, um, the Oski Wee Wee kind of broke out after one fan just kind of shouted it out. And Mayor Horvath is like, yeah, it's time to do it. <laughs> and they got it done. It, a Tie Cats event would not be a Tie Cats event without the Oski Wee Wee. So good on the fans for for uh, celebrating in style as Simone was cheering on as well. As for the man himself, Simone Lawrence took the podium yesterday as well. Here's what he had to say. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Mayor. Um, I'm extremely grateful and thankful for this opportunity. Thank you for, uh, I know you, you didn't name the snowplow, at least I don't think you did. <laughs> but thank you very much. Thank you to the fans, of course for showing so much love throughout my career here in Hamilton. Um, this 10 years probably been like the best uh, years of my life, you know? Um, I'm gonna miss the hell out of football and I'm gonna miss the hell out of playing in front of the fans a lot. Um, but, you know, I'm super grateful for Hamilton Sports Group for giving me the opportunity to be the brand and community ambassador of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And now I get to cheer on the boys. <laughs> Oh, man, I can't wait to send you guys text messages after game. <laughs> um, you know, we're just going to keep moving forward here in Hamilton. And um, I'm excited to work with Courtney and everybody in that um, a part of the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats. Sorry, I'm all choked up, guys. I'm trying not to cry, but I loved it so much. <laughs> um, yeah. The, um, the community and the fans, super grateful for you guys. Um, I'll see you guys all tonight. Yeah. And that's what, what uh, Sim had to say at the mic. And so I had a, a chance after literally dozens of fans had their picture taken with Simone, got his autograph, and I was just kind of waiting in the sidelines thinking, okay, let's have you know, all this, th these raft of fans get their little moment with Simone. And he was more than happy to oblige each and every one of them. So after all that, uh, Simone and I had a, a, a conversation about, well, th this moment in time. February 21st, 2024, Simone Lawrence Day. From here on in, what does that feel like? That's crazy. <laughs> it's kind of legendary, right? Um, but yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, super grateful. Uh, can't really put it in words right now, but it's an unreal experience, you know, just to get that kind of love from the city. Can you imagine this? Ten years ago, you show up and, like, now you got a big snowplow behind you with your name on it and the whole bit? <laughs> nah, this is all insane, man. Like, it's just it's just grinding. It's just work on work on work. <laughs> you got another event tonight? Uh, that's going to be kind of fun, too. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, see what they have in store, you know, knowing uh, Hamilton Sports Group. I'm sure it'll be a little route. <laughs> this is must have been an emotional roller coaster for you. Yeah, for sure. You know, I try not to talk too much about it in front of people because, like, I get choked up sometimes. So it's like, it's going to take a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What are you most looking forward to doing in the community? 
Same thing I've been doing, you know, I look forward to just getting into the schools and like starting different kinds of different programs and just being more interactive with the kids, you know, just like so the kids can see and feel and like see what greatness looks like and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Um, so any way I can help with the children aspect, like that's where I'm going to be going the hardest for sure. I'm sure we'll see you on game day as well. Obviously not on the field, but in, in the crowd, mingling with the, the fans. Nice press box. <laughs> well, let me tell you, it is. <laughs> that, that's going to feel kind of different, but, you know, yeah. in, in a good sense too. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, yeah, watching, I'm, I'm, it's going to be different for sure. It's going to be different for sure. But from a different point of view, it's always, always fun. So we'll see how that feels. Have you thought about, you know, you're such an inspirational guy on the field, obviously off the field too, you know, hundreds of community appearances. Mm-hmm. How does that resonate with you? Um, it's just like lets me know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I feel like whenever you're given a gift from my like God and stuff like that, you have to give back. And, you know, I try my best to give back as much as I can because I know that, you know, like, gifts aren't just given to everyone well the legend will continue february 21st and uh, it's a great day it's a great number and a great career thank you so much i appreciate it congratulations again to simone lawrence yes it is going to be rather weird for him to be watching the games as opposed to competing in them and that fire is going to be burning quite hard especially as the season commences in just a few months from now thanks for listening to the good morning hamilton podcast you can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5 30 to 9 on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com the good morning hamilton podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast and wherever you get your favorite podcast i'm rick samprin thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review